0: Please remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Pay careful attention to the gospel of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down. And worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. For your word and for your son, Jesus, our champion over temptation, we pray that as we open your word, be present with us by your spirit to make us more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Today, as we consider Christ's victory over temptation, as we consider Christ's victory over Satan in the wilderness... It's important that we keep in mind the backdrop to our gospel lesson. It's the same backdrop as our service today, a baptism. Jesus' baptism in the end of Matthew 3. At the end of Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, and as he comes up out of the water, we have the, one of the great Trinitarian moments where the heavens are parted and the Spirit descends on him in the form of the dove, anointing him for ministry. And we see the father's declaration over Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we need to keep this backdrop in mind because it will be the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness for his contest with Satan. And it is that very declaration of the father, you are my beloved son, that becomes the basis for Satan's temptations. The very comfort and identity that the Father bestows on Jesus is what's called into question in Satan's temptations. You see that in the passage that we just read. Satan's temptations begin with, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. In fact, the whole temptation narrative in Matthew 4 revolves around the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? You see, Satan is not so much calling into question the fact of Jesus's identity as the Son, but the meaning of that identity. The temptations that Satan offers Jesus run something like this. If you are the Son of God, and you are, then shouldn't God Fill in the blank. If you are the son of God, and you are, shouldn't God provide you with bread? If you are God's child, shouldn't God keep you safe? If you're God's son, shouldn't you be comfortable and adored? In doing this, Satan is not so much contesting if Jesus is God's son, but the meaning of being God's son. And in doing this, he's slandering the character of Of the Father. The temptation is for Jesus to look at his circumstances and doubt the Father's kindness and his goodness, his promises. It's to doubt the Father's word. And that's our temptation as well, isn't it? It's always to look at our identity and ascribe Satan's meanings to it. The other reason it's important for us to keep this baptismal backdrop in mind, is that Matthew is not primarily interested in presenting us with strategies for how to deal with temptation, although we will see that. More importantly, he's presenting us with a champion to be received by faith, Jesus, the true Son of God, who defeats Satan, sin, and temptation on our behalf. And in highlighting Jesus' identity as the Son, Matthew shows us how he fulfills a number of Old Testament identities, or a number of Old Testament pictures. Although Jesus is eternally and definitively the Son, he's not actually the first person in scriptures to be called the Son of God. There are really three other sons that Matthew is highlighting in the temptation narrative. And there are striking connections between Jesus as the son and these other sons. First, David, in a number of the Psalms, is called God's son. And after he is anointed to be king, in the very next chapter, he goes out to fight Goliath, a serpentine armored giant in single combat. And Goliath taunts the lines of Israel for 40 days. David crushed Goliath's head and led God's people in victory, but later David would, like the rest of us, fall through temptation when he sees Bathsheba from his rooftop. So Matthew presents Jesus as a new David, one who brings the kingdom by defeating the satanic foe and remaining faithful. To us, his bride, by laying down his life rather than seizing her selfishly. The nation of Israel is also called God's son in Exodus. When Moses goes to deliver God's message to Pharaoh, he says, Thus says the Lord Israel is my son, my firstborn. I tell you, let my son go. Israel, likewise, was baptized in the Red Sea and is to be planted in the Promised Land as a priestly people to bring God's blessings to the world. But as we read earlier, their faith cratered in the wilderness. So much of Matthew's gospel is taken up with Jesus reliving and rewriting Israel's history, which he does here by passing through the Jordan and remaining faithful in the wilderness. Jesus is Israel done right. He is able to succeed in the very place where they fail. Finally, Adam is also called God's son in Genesis by being made in his image. And in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, he's explicitly called the son of God. But where Adam fails to protect his bride in the garden by eating forbidden food, Jesus will enter into... The desert into the wilderness and refuse to eat the eat the food that is rightfully his. So all of these images are interplaying with each other, and all these images are in the background of the temptation narrative, and all of them revolve around the same question that Jesus is faced with: What does it mean to be the Son of God? But Matthew doesn't bring up these pictures and allusions just to be an interesting Bible exercise or an academic. Uh, checklist. He holds Jesus out as the fulfillment of these types to be a true encouragement to our faith in Christ as our champion. We really do need someone to silence the accuser over our sin. Sin is a reality in our life, and Satan does come out every morning and evening to taunt us with our sin. We need someone to to silence the accuser and crush his head. We really do need a priest who will atone for our sin and assure us of God's favor and bring the blessings of God to all the nations of the earth. We really do need someone to undo the curse that was laid on this world because of our first father, Adam, and undo the decay. And as we see Jesus in this passage defeating Satan's temptation... He teaches us truly what it means to be the Son of God, to rest in the Father's love, even if he leads us to the desert, even if he calls us to take up a cross, to trust the word of our Father. And as we receive his work by faith, he will teach us to walk in his footsteps. Matthew 4 begins, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, To be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. So the different gospel writers describe Jesus' movement into the desert in the spirit differently because they're placing different emphases on Jesus' ministry. Mark, for example, says that Jesus was driven into the wilderness, Luke says that Jesus went into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. And here, Matthew tells us that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, which reminds us of the language of Israel being led up out of Egypt by God. The 40 days and 40 nights also recall Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and the 40 mornings and evenings where Goliath came out to taunt the the Israelite line. The number 40 in the Bible is associated with a preparation for trial or ministry. For example, Noah remained in the ark for 40 days and nights. Moses fasted for 40 days before receiving the tablets of the law. And Elijah fasted for 40 days before the revelation of God's voice in the mountaintop cave. Jesus spends 40 days and nights fasting in the wilderness before beginning his ministry on our behalf starting with a showdown with satan and temptation. But see the comfort that is packed into just these two verses. Notice again, it's the spirit that leads us in Jesus into the wilderness. God does not and God cannot tempt us in the sense of enticing us to do wrong, but he does lead his children into tests and trials to reveal what's in our hearts, mostly to reveal to us what's in our hearts. God already knows what's in our hearts. Just like we read in Romans 5, God tests us for our endurance and for our good. It's how God brings us to maturity by placing devils and dangers and deserts in our way. God's not seducing us to evil, but He does intend these trials to strengthen us so we grow in faith and hope. He tests us so we will be prepared for greater faithfulness later on. You can see this all throughout the Bible. God gave Adam a perfect garden and a perfect bride, a perfect job, and a dragon to kill. God delivered Israel out of Egypt, and He made them pass through the wilderness, God tests us by taking away those things that we rely on. Perhaps with the loss of a job. Or maybe God will test you by giving you a job and a raise just to see how will you handle it. Maybe God will give you the perfect job that you've always wanted and a coworker that you can't stand. <laughs> God tests us with our children. He tests us in our marriage. He tests us by making wait for things far longer than we want to wait. And in a time where most many of the things that we rely on that are comfortable and that are known to us are in danger and taking away, this passage is acutely applicable to our situation. Will we trust God in the midst of trial? It's a comfort to know that it's God, our gracious, Father, who's leading us into trials, just as he did Jesus in this passage. And there is great comfort in verse number 2, which I think is one of the greatest understatements of all time. Verse 2, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. You think? <laughs> it's a comfort to know, though, that Jesus really was hungry. Jesus really was tired. He really was alone. He undertook our burdens and temptations as a true man. We often think of Jesus as made of titanium and floating over the surface of the earth, just impervious, but that's not how the gospels present Jesus. Jesus was a true man. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, says Hebrews 4.15, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus took on our humanity. He took on this trial as a true man. And as we come to him in our weaknesses, our temptations, he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be hungry and tired and at the very weakest And it is at his weakest point that his temptations began. Look at verse number three. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So did you catch that? Did you see how Satan twists the logic of his identity? Do you see how Satan twists the scripture? Satan comes to Jesus when he's tired and weak and hungry and says, I've read this story before. The wilderness, the Son of God, and you're hungry. What's next? What's the next thing in this story? It's the manna. Where's your bread, Jesus. Israel was the son of God, and they got bread in the wilderness. You had better use your power. You had better use your position to get the food you need. God, it seems, has forgotten you. How often have you heard that voice? Get what you need now. God is not looking out for you. This is precisely where Israel failed. Having seen God's power and love in delivering them from Egypt, their hearts got taken up with the apparent lack in the desert, and their rumbling stomachs, and they complained against God. In reply, though, to Satan, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 and gives the true meaning of the manna, it was to teach Israel that it actually was not the bread sustaining them, but God. Deuteronomy 8, three says, So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. But why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, In the context that Jesus expands and quotes back to Satan, Deuteronomy 8, the manna was supposed to teach Israel that it's not the manna that's sustaining them in the wilderness. It's not the bread keeping them alive, but God. God sustains us. God, sure, God may use the food that we eat, the jobs that we have, the materials that he gives us to sustain us. But at the end of the day, it's God who keeps us alive, who sustains us, who provides everything that we need. And the manna was supposed to teach them that lesson, but Satan twists it. His words sound reasonable, but they're actually slandering God. Satan appeals to our needs, often to our very legitimate needs for food or clothing or shelter or safety And he tempts us to grasp at these things without waiting for God to fulfill them according to his word and in his time. We have to recognize that if we are going without what we need or what we think we need, and if God requires us to do that, then we live as sons by going without those things. Nothing is so vital that we should be willing to disobey God to get it. Satan takes Christ's own formula for quoting the Scriptures and quotes to him a portion of Psalm 91, which we read together earlier. But what exactly is the devil tempting Jesus with? Why does he quote Psalm 91 in this context? It's an odd temptation. But it makes more sense when we see that the word for the pinnacle of the temple is also the same word for a wing. It's the same word in the Greek version of Psalm 91, verse 4, which says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wing you shall take refuge. The temple was known as God's refuge, as his dwelling. Listen to the beginning again of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High Shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The temple was God's refuge, and Satan was applying that logic to their setting. He's saying, Here we are, Jesus, under God's wings in his temple, in the refuge, the place of security. Show your trust. And God's protection, throw yourself down. Because if you're the Son of God, and you are, He will protect you. And the Jews here at the temple will no doubt know that you are their Messiah and their King. The fulfillment of Psalm 91. But Jesus' response shows us that this would simply be testing God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, which references... The incident at Massa, where Israel complained about the lack of water in the wilderness, that from Exodus 17. And instead of judging Israel, the Lord told Moses to strike the rock with his rod so that water would flow. And the Lord himself would stand before the rock as Moses struck it. In other words, the Lord met Israel's tempting and their testing by submitting himself to judgment. So what's the connection? Jesus alludes to that incident and implies that instead of testing God, that he too would submit to judgment. But to throw himself off the temple and be borne up by angels would be to abandon the Father's plan and attempt to garner the faith of his people without having to submit to the rod, without having to go through the pain of the cross. And it is at the cross where Jesus will come out from under the wings of the Father's protection to bear the wrath for your sin and for mine. And in doing this, he will dash his foot, not on a stone, but while he crushes the head of the serpent. It's interesting that Satan ends his quotation in verse 12, when the very next verse of Psalm 91 says this You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent, you shall tread underfoot. If Jesus had succumbed to the devil's temptation, the devil would escape his crushing and Jesus would escape his foot wound. But Jesus is committed to rescuing his people by offering his very life in obedience to the Father. He trusts his father to rescue him, not from the descent off the temple, but from the descent into the grave. Next, Satan applies his full pressure by taking Jesus to a high mountain. Look again at verse number 8. Then again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down. And worship me. This temptation is as monstrous as it is enticing. Notice that this is the only temptation where Satan does not say, if you are the Son of God, or because you are the Son of God. But that's not because Satan's not calling Jesus's identity into question. Jesus knows, and Satan knows. That Jesus is to receive the rule over all the nations of men from the hand of his Father after the resurrection from the dead. Psalm 2 7 and 8 says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. In this temptation, Satan is offering to take the place of God the Father, which has been his design from the very beginning. And he's offering to deliver the nations to Jesus without the cross, without pain, without death, if only he will serve him instead. In effect, the devil is saying, Jesus, you are pure and holy and good, and you should not have to suffer On account of the nations, it's not right. Take them from my hand instead. You are the Son of God. The rule over the nations is why the Father sent Jesus. And as Jesus looked out over the kingdoms and their splendor and their glory, he also knew that they were captive to idols and sin and under the dominion of the devil. And here in this temptation was a way for him to have them all without pain or wrath or death. What will Jesus say? Verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. No, Jesus says, I will suffer for my people because I'm the Son of God. I show myself to be the Son of God by receiving them from my Father in just the way he wants me to, through the cross, and resurrection. In all of the temptations, and climactically here, Jesus gives us the true interpretation of what it means to be a son of God. It's not to clutch or insist on our own rights or prerogatives, but to receive all things from the hand of the Father in his time and in his way. Philippians 2.5 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was in the act of laying down his own life under the wrath of God that Jesus established his authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. It was when Jesus gasped out his last breath on the cross that the crowds finally said, truly this was the Son of God. Jesus did not receive the nations from Satan, Jesus took them from Satan by receiving them from his Father. This is the good news of the gospel. Satan has no more claim. Sin is atoned for, temptation is defeated, and death is transformed. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. So we make disciples of all the nations that he received. We preach the gospel of Christ's victory everywhere. What are the implications for us then? The first is that Jesus is our champion, the true Son of God who defeated Satan and temptation on your behalf. He is the last Adam, the true Israel, and the greater David. Jesus refused temptation again and again, and in doing so, he broke the power of sin. We receive his work by faith. But as I said in the beginning, remember the baptismal background of this passage. You are baptized. You are united to Him by faith. The Father has spoken His word of declaration over you. You are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus did all of these things for you. Jesus did all of these things as you, and now in union with Him by faith, you do all of these things with Jesus. Walk in the footsteps of Christ You are to go out and tread underfoot sin and temptation and Satan in your own life. And Jesus sets the pattern for us. In any temptation, just as Jesus did, take stock of your situation. Where are you? In the desert. Think about what you want. In the fight against remaining sin, we so often overlook that critical piece. In any situation, what is it? That you want? What is it that you desire? Is it a sinful desire that you must simply get rid of and ignore? Or is it a good and God-given desire, like for bread or for shelter or clothing? What is it that you want? Remember that most of the things that Satan tempts us with are things that we can have if we will wait and have them in God's way and in His timing. Then... In imitation of Jesus, submit your desires to God's word, trusting in the goodness and the kindness of your Father. Our temptations are often tests as to whether or not we will patiently wait and trust. Satan tempts us with sexual pleasure now, or will you wait and fulfill it in marriage the way that God's word says to you? Will you glorify yourself by bragging or boasting or making yourself always the center of attention? Or will you wait according to the word of God and let others exalt you? Will you wait patiently for God's word? In these two things, in knowing in any situation what it is you want and what God's word says about it, there is the fodder for an infinite number of Bible studies. We have to know the word well enough to be able to do this. If you'll notice, in the temptations, Satan was able to allude to pictures and images from Scripture. Satan was able to quote Scripture. It's not enough to know that. Jesus always knew the context of what Satan was quoting and was able to correct the errors and the twisting. We have to know the word well enough to be able to submit our desires to the word. So much of resisting the devil is just as Jesus did, affirming his premise and denying his conclusion. If you are the Son of God, you should always be safe and comfortable and happy. No. So much of resisting Satan is knowing that the first part of what he says is usually true, but the conclusion is a twisting of the word. Finally, We can imitate Jesus in his self-giving. The call of Jesus to be a disciple goes out to every single one of us. Whoever would come after me, says Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus revealed to us the true meaning of being God's son, God's child. Receiving and imitating Jesus means that none of us can say, I shouldn't have to do that, or it's not my problem, it's not my responsibility. Remember, it was in the laying down of his life for others that Jesus established his authority. It is laying down our lives for others. We show ourselves to truly be God's children. So be a true son, be true to the demands of your baptism. Worship and serve God alone, looking to Christ in faith, and the victory will be yours. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our champion and our example. We pray that you would strengthen us in our faith, that we would trust in your kindness and goodness to us in him. We pray in his name. Amen.